I think we'll start, everybody. Um, so I'm Deborah James from the Anthropology Department here at LSE, and it's my pleasure to introduce this session, the Literary Festival, Dr. Seligman and the Islanders, um, which has been put together by the Anthropology Department together with the library. So thanks very much to everyone who has helped organize it, including um, Anna and Liz, who is somewhere around here. Um, so thanks very much to all of you. And um, just to also mention before we start that the library holds a very important collection of Charles and Brenda Seligman's unpublished correspondence and field notes. And you'll be hearing a, little, a few little snippets out of that correspondence from some of our participants today. Before I introduce all the people, um, I'm going to hand over first of all to Adam Cooper, who will tell us a bit about uh, Seligman and who he was. Thank you. Uh, good evening. Charles Gabriel Seligman, Sleeks to his friends, was born in 1873, the only son of a prosperous London wine merchant, Herman Seligman. His mother was Olivia Mendes da Costa, who was a descendant of a very distinguished Swardi English family. One of her direct ancestors, Emmanuel Mendes da Costa, became a fellow of the Royal Society in 1747 and later served as its secretary. He was only the second Jewish fellow of the Royal Society. Seligman was educated at St. Paul's School, where he was rather miserable and unstimulated. And his mother periodically pulled him out of school to stay with her at seaside resorts when she was ill. His parents died young. <coughs> at the age of 16, he was orphaned and farmed out to distant relatives with whom he didn't get on. He was coached privately for his matriculation and won an entrance scholarship to St. Thomas's Hospital. And there he specialized in pathology, winning his membership and the Bristow Medal for Pathology in 1896. He now began a research career in pathology with a particular interest in tropical diseases. And yet, when the Torres Straits expedition was planned, an anthropological expedition to the South Seas, he decided to inveigle a place in it for himself. And in 1898, 25 years old, two years after qualifying in pathology, he set off with a team of Cambridge scientists to investigate the peoples who lived on the scattered islands between Australia and New Guinea. Now, you might think it odd for a young pathologist to join an anthropological expedition to the Pacific, but probably at the time it wasn't as strange as it might seem to us now. At Cambridge, anthropology was firmly rooted in biology. And the Torres Strait team was drawn mainly from the Cambridge School, and its key members were biologists. The leader, Haddon, was a biologist by training, and the other senior member, Rivers, was a neurologist. They recruited three medical men to join them on the Torres Straits expedition. Seligman himself, his close friend C.S. Myers, and William McDougall, who was to go on to become a famous psychologist. And then, in addition, they had a photographer and a linguist with them. Although Haddon and Rivers did some pioneering sociological research, most of the work in the Torres Strait, which you'll see discussed in this film this evening, was on physical anthropology and psychology. And Seligman's main research topic was the pathology of the islanders, 
but he also studied local medical practices and beliefs and examined the native uses of plants and animals. He also assisted Rivers in some of his psychological experiments, and these were mainly concerned with perception, and they were generally path-breaking, the first application of modern experimental psychology to what were termed primitive subjects. Now, Haddon was covering what he called the sociological topics in the Torres Strait, with some help from Rivers, and Seligman began to take an interest in that too. In fact, he was obviously simply enchanted with anthropology, so much so that he considered for a while taking up a medical post at Port Moresby so that he continued the research. <coughs> but for the moment, he returned to London and pathology. And then he had a stroke of luck. His hobby was fly fishing. And on a fishing holiday, he made friends with a rich American, Major Cook Daniels, and got him interested in New Guinea. And in 1904, the Major and Seligman and Seligman's laboratory assistant went off to New Guinea, where Seligman carried out research, which he later wrote up at his leisure in the next few years and published in 1910 as the Melanesians of Papua New Guinea, British New Guinea, sorry. He, his argument there was that the original Papuans had been infiltrated by a racially distinct Melanesian-speaking race, and that the pure Papuans were more primitive physically and more backward culturally than the Melanesians. So that was the argument in the book. The book also had a huge undigested mass of uh, empirical ethnographic materials, but it never enjoyed the success of Rivers's History of Melanesian Society, which was published four years later. But it was good enough to get Seligman appointed at the LSE in the year of publication. In 1905, Seligman had married Brenda Zara Solomon, the youngest of 14 children. Her father was a wealthy city figure. Her brother, Seligman's friend, Redcliffe, became an FRS and was famous for his scientific history of the potato. <laughs> Brenda was educated at Rodine School and Bedford College, but dropped out to marry Seligman. And she then joined him as a co-field worker and soon began to publish anthropological essays in her own right. And together they carried out successful field expeditions to the Veda of Ceylon and to the Anglo-Egyptian Sudan, in both cases financed by the colonial governments. <coughs> now, why the Vedas of Ceylon? <coughs> Haddon had advised Seligman to study the Veda because he favoured the study of the supposedly most primitive and soon-to-vanish hunter-gatherers. And in Ceylon, the couple had a division of labour. Seligman said that he left what he called the social stuff to Brenda, and he himself focused on prehistory, material, culture, and biology. But uh, I think it's fair to say that the main interest of their Veda book today is the discussion of the difficulty of doing fieldwork among the Veda. I'll just read a paragraph. The Veda, this is from the book. The Vedas have long been regarded as a curiosity in Ceylon and excite almost as much interest as the ruined cities. Hence, Europeans go to the nearest rest house on the main road and have the Dangigala Vedas brought to them. Naturally, the Vedas felt uncomfortable and shy at first, but when they found that they only had to look gruff and grunt replies in order to receive presents, they were quite clever enough to keep up the pose. 
In this they were aided by the always agreeable villagers ever ready to give the white man exactly what he wanted. The Nilgala headman sends word when strangers are expected. Then the Vedas repair to their very striking huts on the Rodok Dome and often post a lookout on a big rock about halfway up. These folk, who when we saw them wore their Veda loincloths and were smeared with ashes, are reported to wear ordinary Singhalese clothes when not in their professional pose. <laughs> Indeed, it appeared that not only have members of the community learned to play the part of professional primitive men, but there has even been specialization. For as far as we could learn, the men we met in the lookout hut are those who are always receive visitors or come to Bibile when sent for, while the others whom we did not see did not pose as wild Vedas. So in consequence, Seligman comes to the conclusion in the book that they make terrible informants. Further talk with these people showed that it was impossible to obtain reliable information from them. They had been utterly spoiled as a result of being frequently interviewed by travellers. It's very far from the fieldwork of Malinowski. By 1910, when he joined the LSE, Seligman had abandoned pathology for ethnology, but when World War I broke out, he was commissioned in the Royal Army Medical Corps. He also, patriotically at that stage, altered the spelling of his name. Did, did you know that? It was originally two M's, and he dropped the one, just the other, leading Malinowski to make the typically Malinowskian joke, typical of Sligs to do everything by halves. <laughs> in the years 19... Thank you. <laughs> in the years 1918-1919, Seligman was attached to the Maghull Hospital in Liverpool, which specialised in the treatment of what Myers had diagnosed as shell shock and what we would today call post-traumatic stress disorder. And here he joined colleagues from the Torres Strait expedition, because there at Moghill, treating the shell-shocked patients, were not only Seligman, but Rivers, Myers, and McDougall. And their clinical experiences stimulated an interest in psychoanalytical theories, which were then just becoming known, and in particular in dreams. And Rivers published a very interesting revisionist book on dreams, and Seligman directed his students in the field, including Malinowski, to read Freud and Jung and to collect dreams. And he urged, more generally, he urged anthropologists to borrow ideas from the psychoanalysts, and he argued that common unconscious processes underlaid all rituals all over the world. After the war, Seligman picked up on field research that he had already begun in the Anglo-Egyptian Sudan. Now, at this stage, following Rivers again, he became a diffusionist, and now he was inspired by a new twist of diffusionist theory. Flinders Petrie, um, the Egyptologist at University College London, had been making in the 1920s extraordinarily famous dis sensational discoveries in Egypt, uh, most famously the excavation of the tomb of Tutankhamun. And Petrie's colleague at University College, um, the anatomist and pioneering physical anthropologist Grafton Elliot Smith had begun to develop the thesis that all human civilizations came originally from Egypt. Rivers was very excited by this and he paid a visit to Petrie in the field and in fact did some research of his own on the color vision of peasants who engaged in Petrie's excavations. Well Seligman's visited Cairo and then spent several months in the Sudan 
making three expeditions between 1909 and 1922. And in 1913, Seligman published his now notorious, then rather famous, Hamitic thesis, which proposed that the civilizations of the Sudan had been introduced from Egypt by a light-skinned race of conquerors. I quote, features common to the social life and religion of ancient Egypt and tropical Negro land were due to the infiltration of the latter with the ideas of that great white race of which the pre-dynastic Egyptians constitute the oldest known as well as one of the purest branches. The history of Africa south of Sahara is no more than the story of the permeation through the ages of different degrees and at various times of the Negro and Bushman Aborigines by Hamitic blood and culture. The Hamites were, in fact, the great civilizing force of black Africa. This racial diffusionist theory was later generalized and popularized in his Races of Africa, published in 1930. Inspired by Fraser, he also identified the institution of divine kingship among the Shiluk of the Sudan, although, of course, he argued that it was originally Egyptian. In 1932, the Seligmans published The Pagan Tribes of the Nilotic Sudan, which provided the background for the next generation of ethnographers of the southern Sudan, above all, the works of Seligman's other great protege, Evans Pritchard, who was much more loyal to Seligman than Malinowski was. Well, Seligman was also involved in the development of anthropology at the LSE. But so completely is anthropology at the LSE associated with Malinowski that we've lost sight of its prehistory. We forget the relationship between early anthropology at the school and the first LSE sociologists, Hobhaus, Ginsberg, and more particularly the Swedish Finn, Edward Westermark, who wrote the one truly Darwinian study of the development of marriage and did significant field research in Morocco. And in all of that, the true founder of LSE anthropology, Slick Seligman, has, I think, been forgotten. Now, it's true that there was somebody before Seligman, in a way, because Haddon used to give occasional lectures in anthropology in London since 1904. But it was in 1910 that the LSE established its first permanent post in the field, and Seligman was appointed as university lecturer in ethnology. In the following year, the school set up a bachelor's program in anthropology, and in 1913, Seligman's post was transformed into a part-time chair. It was part-time on Seligman's insistence so as to allow him to pop off for long periods of fieldwork when he wanted to. He was passionate about fieldwork. It was Seligman who made the famous comment that field research in anthropology is what the blood of martyrs is to the church. Malnowski turned up in 1910, the year of Seligman's appointment, as a postdoctoral student at the LSE. He'd come to work with Westermark, but soon became a protege of Seligman. Of course, it was Malinowski who later made the LSE a world center of anthropology, but it was Seligman who guided Malinowski's early career and smoothed his way in the school. In his splendid biography of Malinowski, Michael Young writes, Seligman did for anthropology in London what Haddon did for the discipline at Cambridge, including the teaching of missionaries and colonial officers. But one of the factors that made their otherwise comparable careers distinct was the unpredictable person of Malinowski himself. 
While Haddon nurtured many academic progeny, none had the disruptive potential and paradigm-sifting genius of Malinowski, Seligman's protégé. The fundamental English decency of both men, Seligman and Haddon, was often taxed by the volatile pole, Michael Young says, and Haddon was doubtless relieved that Malinowski remained at arm's length in London. In 1911, Malinowski actually planned to follow Seligman into the Sudan, even learning Arabic, and Seligman did his best to get a grant for him from the school. This was turned down. The secretary of the LSE commented that having created Seligman's lectureship and agreed to the establishment of a bachelor's degree in the discipline, quote, they felt they had rather exhausted themselves over ethnology. <laughs> but Seligman persisted. He steered Malinowski to his own earlier field area in Melanesia, raised grants for him, and even went shopping with Malinowski at Lan and Adler, home and colonial supplies. At six guineas, the most expensive item they bought was a tent, but when Malinowski got to the Trobrians, it turned out to be too small, and he had to buy another one, the one that features in the famous photographs. And when the school established a chair in the discipline, the first in London University in 1927, Seligman made sure that it was Malinowski who was appointed to it. On Malinowski's request, the chair was designated not in ethnology but in social anthropology. And this signaled a break with the tradition represented by Seligman, for they had very different views of the subject. Malinowski's Argonauts of the Western Pacific is dedicated to Seligman, but Seligman himself much preferred Baloma. Michael Young sums up the relationship between the two men, I think, very well. Only 11 years older than Malinowski, Seligman was more a supportive elder brother than a father figure. Plagued by ill health, the two men formed a collegial bond of suffering, which they nourished by the exchange of bulletins on their latest symptoms. <laughs> there are 300 letters between them in the LSE archive that document the ups and downs of personal and professional relationships spanning almost 30 years. They quarreled occasionally, but until the very end, there remained a deep undercurrent of mutual affection. It was Seligman who urged upon Malinowski the crucial importance of field research. It was Seligman who found the funding for his research in New Guinea. It was Seligman's bureaucratic persistence that gained him his Doctor of Science degree, and it was largely thanks to Seligman that he secured his appointment to and promotions at the London School of Economics. Now, without Seligman, Malinowski's career would not have flourished as it did, I think, perhaps not even surviving the difficult early years after World War I. And certainly without Seligman's groundwork in his nurturing of Malinowski, the LSE would not have become a major centre of social anthropology in the 1930s. He has another forgotten piece of history. We tend to think of Malinowski's seminar in the 1930s as the, the school that formed modern British social anthropology. But in fact, Malinowski and Seligman operated what Malinowski called a gentleman's agreement on the supervision of students. Social anthropology students were su supervised by Malinowski, and those more interested in ethnology and prehistory went to Seligman. And it was Seligman, not Malinowski, who supervised the theses of the first Africanists produced at the LSE, Evans Pritchard, Isaac Shapira, and Jack Dryberg, and he later st steered Nadell to the Sudan. Shapira's first idea for a doctoral thesis was actually 
to write uh, an account of the divine kingship among the Shilok. And Evans Pritchard later wrote a famous essay on the institution, and this, of course, was Seligman's topic. And both Evans Pritchard and Shapiro remained very loyal to Seligman, I think a bit uncritically loyal, because they later made, I think, the very ill-advised attempt to update Seligman's races of Africa. But in any case, the American uh, Africanist and diffusionist Melville Herskowitz was also another admirer. And Evans, Pritchard, and Shapira took Seligman's side against Malinowski in the early 1930s when Malinowski talked the Rockefeller Foundation into funding research at the LSE uh, in Africa. Malinowski insisted on taking control of the new group of Africanist students funded by Rockefeller, which included Maya Fortas, Audrey Richards, Lucy Mayer, and Hilda Cooper. And he marginalized Seligman, who was, after all, then one of the leading Africanists in the world. And this might have contributed to Seligman's decision to resign his professorship in 1934, although he was also suffering ill health, evidently having picked up some infections in the Sudan. In 1938, he taught for six months at Yale, and I would bet that Yale's fateful invitation to Malinowski to teach there the following year was urged on them by the loyal Seligman. After his retirement, Sleeks and Brenda concentrated on another of their avocations, the collection of Chinese and Japanese porcelain. They made a six-month tour of China and Japan in 1929 and set up a small private museum in their home in Court Lees near Oxford to house their collection. Seligman typically even developed and published a theory that glass and beads were introduced to China from the West, the diffusion that in time had led to the development of new methods of producing porcelain. Uh, some of this collection is in the Pitt Rivers Museum now, but most of it is in the Victoria and Albert Museum, and others of the artifacts collected by the Seligman are in the British Museum. Gruff, rather awkward socially, Seligman was devoted to Brenda, who had better social skills. And their home near Oxford with its famous iris garden and its collection of Far Eastern artifacts attracted connoisseurs and visiting anthropologists over three decades. Sliggs had enduring friendships with early colleagues and his students, and so far as I've been able to discover, no enemies. He died in 1940. He deserves to be better remembered by the anthropologists at the LSE. Thank you very much, Adam. Now, of course, I should have introduced Adam with a long and fulsome introduction, but it would have taken far too long because his <coughs> CV is so illustrious that it would probably have taken the whole session. But at the very least, Adam, thank you for making sure that we do start remembering Seligan, Seligman much better than, than we have so far. Um, those of you who are anthropology students here will know the Seligman Library. Now you know who Seligman was, so you <laughs> go and tell everybody else. Um, so the, the, the format of this will now take a slightly more, a slightly sort of dramatic, well not dramatic, but theatrical uh, <laughs> dimension. We, we actually are privileged to have here quite a few members of the Seligman family, and, and one of them is actually going to participate in our little piece of theatre. What we're going to do is have three readings from Seligman's letters, from his journals, and um, from different things, and I will introduce each of them in turn. If you want to applaud, could you just keep your applaud, applause and, until the end? 
So first of all, um, I'm going to introduce Olivia Seligman. Um, she is a radio producer and a member of the Seligman family, and she's going to read two entries from journals that Seligman kept during the expedition he and his wife, Brenda, made to study the better people in Sri Lanka in 1909. February the 1st, 1908. At about 4 p.m., four Veda stalked in to see my assistant, and he brought them in to us. We gave them curry materials and rice and it was interesting to find out how very pungently they made their curry. They passed the afternoon and night on old sacks on our veranda. They were quite interested in everything that went on, especially in Brenda and me. When she gave them boiled sweets, they were suspicious, but seeing her eat one of these, one man put a sweet in his mouth, then spat it out and asked in a curious sing-song voice whether he would die. She reassured him, and he admitted that it tasted like honey, but they still all put the sweets in their pouches. One man said he would give them to his wife. <laughs> After dinner, they began to sing, and when we went to look at them, first one and then three of them danced. Their dance is the least restrained that I have seen. The rhythm is supplied by the song refrain and the slapping of their hands on their chests and flanks. But beyond this, there is very little regularity. In one figure, in which an arrow is planted in the ground, the performers began to move around it clockwise, with hands facing inwards. But very soon, one performer was circling anti-clockwise between the other two going clockwise. The two performers who had not planted their arrow held these in their hands in front of them, with their bodies somewhat bent forward. The arrow was moved from side to side as they danced. The steps were taken with legs tolerably wide apart, the weight of the body being taken on one leg while the other was scraped along the ground by somewhat tilting the pelvis. This movement took place alternately on the two legs, though sometimes a double step, as in a polka, was substituted. Then, after some time of this, the circle being quite broken by now, all three men exhaled loudly and held their arrows up to the sky and waved them. Then suddenly they fell flat on their backs. They were lifted up and held by a companion. They then said something, in this case promising me a white buffalo for the next day. The falling down was not real exhaustion. It was too sudden and their pulse too good. Indeed, it was surprisingly calm for the violent exercise. February the 2nd, 1908. We went to Ambalina Bungalow, taking the Vedas a distance of about six miles. In the evening, the phonograph was got out. After comparatively little persuasion, a Veda sang into it. They were greatly amazed, but certainly not scared of the machine. Astonishment was expressed by placing a hand over mouth and chin and palm to face so that their fingers were on either side of the nose. Then, when the hand was removed, a more or less nervous grin could be seen. Compared to the new Papuasians, there was certainly less shyness. The other folk refused to sing, and we did not press them. We gave them Mikado, which impressed them not at all, <laughs> then Mendelssohn's wedding march, and then Chopin's funeral march. 
On a question as to whether the latter was sad, the Veda headman said it was like folk crying, and the other Vedas agreed. As regards the wedding march, it was, I believe, generally recognised as joyous. At least the Vedas agreed in saying so when suggested by the headman, who had, however, been told that it was sung when a white man fetched his bride from her parents' house. <laughs> For those of you wondering what to write up in your field notes, now you have a good idea. <laughs> we now have um, Bibo Mukhaya, who's a LSE anthropology student, who himself has some connections to the Sudan, I think. Um, he's going to read from four letters written by Seligman to Bronislaw Malinowski. First two are from 1915, while Malinowski was in Australia publishing results of his fieldwork and planning his expedition to the Trobian Islands. The second two are later, from 1922, by which time Malinowski had returned to Europe and was writing up his Trobian research. Ebo. February 4th, 1915. Dear Malinowski, your plans seem to be coming out quite nicely, and Haddon, who is just back, has written to me about you. Speaking of his visit to Melu, he says he was getting on very well and had done some good work at Port Moresby. I think he will make an excellent field worker. So cheer up, even if the photographs are not coming out just as well as you'd like them to. Still, don't be too saving of your plates. Remember, they won't improve with keeping. Haddon said he spoke to Atlee Hunt about you, and he thinks it will be a given maintenance allowance. I hope this will materialise in any case. If I were you when you are back in New Guinea, I should drop Mondeline telling him that you are getting results just to show him that you've not forgotten his kindness and interest. Don't ask for anything. Now that I've heard from Haddon and know how you stand, I shall also drop him a line saying that you have already done good work in Melo and so on. I wish I could give you any news about your mother, but apart from the worry of not having heard from her, I should imagine there was no special cause for anxiety. She is, I suppose, an Austrian subject, and there is lots of Austria unaffected by the Russians' advance. She will, of course, be suffering from some of the mental and emotional wear and tear of the present time, but from what I know of the unselfishness of mothers, I should think it quite possible that she is greatly relieved that you are out of at all. It's extraordinary diffi extraordinarily difficult to know what to make of the war news, and of course things may go wrong at any time, but it does seem as if the Russians were really holding up the Germans and Austrians this time. And although I don't understand German psychology, I suppose they would not try torpedoing hospital ships unless the sense of danger had made them frantic. By the way, there is a site somewhere near Sydney where it is possible to pick up large numbers of pygmy stone implements. Hedley or Whitliger at the museum would know about this. You might go out and investigate and bring or send me a cigarette box full. June 16th, 1915. Dear Malinowski, just got your letter of 4th of May from Melbourne, and I'm delighted that you are getting your Melu stuff printed in Australia. Your letter came particularly appropriately as it arrived on the morning of the quarterly professorial council at the school. So I wrote Reeves a letter announcing the arrangement and pointing out what a good omen it was for the work you were, do, were to do on behalf of the school. And he read this at the council. Graham Wallace inquired what most tenderly about you afterwards. I hope you were taking quinine regularly. Your letter rather suggests that you have been careless. Though I admit 
that quinine is not always the absolute safeguard we once thought it was. However, it, would, it, it should work effectively in something over 99% of instances. <laughs> I wrote to your mother directly, I got your letter, telling her how well things were with you, and I said nothing about the fever, which I gathered from your letter, was after all trifling, or at least not severe. There is an Esperanto agency which forwards letters b between belligerent countries. I enclose in its name on a separate sheet with instructions what to do. I think if you wrote a short letter with no mention of war in it, it might possibly get through to her. I had a letter from her about a month ago in which she asks how you are off financially and she practically offered to arrange to send you money if this could be done if you needed it. I said I thought this had been satisfactory arranged and that she need not worry herself about it. As a matter of fact, I'm not hard up at present. Of course, one doesn't know what is coming, but the first period of the war, when incomes drop so rapidly, has passed off. And though my income is reduced, I still have what Haddon calls a good living wage. I mention all this because unless matters go worse, suddenly you can count on 50 pounds from me if you really quiet to keep the work going. But this is not a promise. If the Germans, after knocking out the Russians, success in breaking through to the French coast, they will certainly be able to cut off the North Sea from the channel. That would mean invasion, and at the best, such financial straits that we should all be living literally from hand to mouth. I'm very good, glad that you are going to the southeast, especially to Russell. Let me have a slight of, sight of Paul's or a typed copy of your Meilu manuscript as soon as you conveniently can. I hope that meanwhile, Meilu and the southeast, you may throw light on the question of skull cults in Melanesia. Finally, don't forget to measure and photograph all the Russell Islanders you can. If you can't, if you can get some of their skulls, so much the better. Good luck. January 4th, 1923. My dear Bronio, first, with regard to your health, I cannot tell you how sorry I am to hear that you have been seedy again. But really, my dear chap, you must not worry yourself about diseases, which you certainly have not got. It is quite certain that you have not got septimania, which me means that existence of pathological bacteria in the circulating blood, even if it is rare chronic forms, it implies diffuse abscesses, high temperatures and general condition of acute illness. Moreover, I am quite sure that you are not cachetic in any ordinary sense of the word. It is simply wicked of you to erect these bugbears and then make yourself miserable over them. Now about myself. We had another consultation yesterday and I was forbidden to do any lecturing during the coming term. I'm instructed to take things absolutely easy. All this is the more worrying, as you are unwell at the same time. But I don't know how unwell you are. And this morning, when I wrote to Beveridge, giving him new, the news about myself, I said that I thought he would be justified in sending you a telegram, asking you to go to town where there is really good consultant, explain precisely the position to him, have him examine you thoroughly, and express an opinion as to whether you are justified in coming over for a couple of months. I have pointed out to him that the alternatives to your coming is to try and run a couple of courses of lectures with stop gaps, e.g. Joyce for one course and T.C. Hodgson for the other. 
I hope you won't think I've been unreasonable or selfish in suggesting to Beveridge that we should find out precisely how matters stand with you before attempting to run the department at the moral and intellectual loss which is bound to accrue if it is necessary to have men who, however good they may be, are in this particular function mere stopgaps. <laughs> to return to myself, I could get nothing very definite in the way of prognosis out of Jared, but I can tell my feelings that I cannot afford to be other than obedient and present. Yours ever. February 5th, 1923. My dear Bronio, first, with regard to what you say as to your coming over during the spring, by all means go on preparing your lectures. You will have to give them some time, but I think that it is now more important that you should come over until your doctor is absolutely certain as one can be of anything in this world, that you will take no harm. I put the matter strongly because since writing to you, I have been up to town and have been thoroughly overhauled by a specialist on hearts with all the newest flaws and instruments and so on. The prognosis is really a good deal worse than we had thought. <laughs> he would not even commit himself to, as to any opinion as to whether I should be able to go on with my London work in a regular way in the autumn until he was seen me again in from three to six months' time. Meanwhile, I am sent to bed for the best part of another month and put on all sorts of restrictions for two months more, and I have at, be at the best to lead a somewhat restricted life forever after. Though, if I feel all right, there is nothing in these restrictions to actually prevent me getting through a great deal of work in London. So you see the extreme importance of you getting really all right before you take any chances over here. I don't know anything about some baths except that they have proved immensely successful with the more chronic forms of infection in children, even in our climate. But assuming as one does that it is due to the actrinic rays, I can conceive that for a white man, blonde as you are, to lay the whole of himself naked in really strong sun might be rather overdoing it and might even produce a slight temperature. <laughs> if I were you, I should try and find out something about the actual practice, and with a really strong sun, I should uh, certainly not begin with more than one to one and a half hours a day. <laughs> Though, if you stand, there is no reason, I suppose, why the time should not be rapidly increased. As far as the skin reaction goes, I imagine the general beneficial tendency would be towards browning, but not the sort of sunburn that produces the acute reddening all over the body. What rotters the French are. First of all, they muck up any chance of our getting reparations, and then they go and stir up the Turks at Lausanne, after undertaking to stand in for a unified pressure. Well, one thing I take, it is fairly clear we cannot afford to engage in any active warfare, as far as raids and so forth go to the French, are just as likely to suffer in Syria as we are in Mesopotamia. There is one more thing I should like to say after your coming, about your coming over this summer. If you cannot come, I have little doubt that I shall be able to find among those interested in your work, at least, somewhere near the amount the school was going to give you for your lectures. So don't worry about that now. Yours ever. That makes me think it's probably quite a relief that not many of us are doctors as well as being anthropologists. 
But also thank God for the NHS, which was invented sometime afterwards. So finally we have Andrew Bax, also an LSE anthropology student, and he's reading from Seligman's description of his treatment of Private Larvin, a young so soldier suffering from shell shock, following his service as a stretcher bearer at the Third Battle at Ypres. Ninth of June, 1918. Private Larvin sleeps fairly well. He dreams what happened to him. What came into my head a few days ago came into my head when I fell out of bed one night. It shocked me. I seen something. I was awake. Just as I shut my eyes, I seen something. I see what happened to me as I was going up the lines. Bodies knocking about all over. We were going up the line on division stretcher bearer duty. Six of us were in the dugout, and the sergeant said, take that stretcher case down. So he took it, and we seen a tank. We was on the left-hand side of the tank, and it was fast in the mud. They were sh 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 shelling it. Here he stutters for the first time. Shells were dropping all round. We were going round by a ridge, and it, it come over. <coughs> he falls forward a little and saves himself with his fat hands pressed on the desk in front of him. It come over and killed, killed the men on the stretcher and broke the stretcher on the left-hand side and wounded one man in the shoulder. He had his hand up and I saw the wound. A nasty cut. I never saw the man at the head of the stretcher at all. Hello. Here he yells hello very loudly, <coughs> turning his head, then looks surprised and laughs. Asked about it. Says he didn't know he was going to do it. Knows he has done it and says he helloed to two Canadian blokes. The Canadians that took me down to the dressing station. I was dazed at first. I remembered the journey down there. Then I forgot all about it. 17th of June, 1918. He said he was bad last night. He said he didn't know what he was doing. I asked what time it was last night that he felt like this. He stared, fell forward, saving himself by his hands on the desk and bent down his head, shaking it off, as if to shake wa water off. A most curious action. He says he can't describe how he shakes his head. Is this because he's forgotten it? It appears so. He says that sometimes he says bastard, and at this time he sees the Hun prisoner, who was in the casualty clearing station, waiting with his arms folded while the men were waiting for their dressing. He yells, hello, ever so loudly. I forgot you, sir. I saw the Canadians out there. 18th of June, 1918. I got him to describe his past history, which he did normally, until I asked him when he was enlisted. I asked about France. He told us the port of disembarkation, and when he approached the question of going up to the lines, the head-shaking began. Then he told us of carrying on in the lines, getting a sore throat, and on this account, being made stretcher-bearer. At this, he suddenly stiffens in his chair, becomes rigid, half stood up, and then fell violently sideways on the floor, eyes closed. A remarkable fall. He didn't hurt himself in any way. We put him on the sofa, and when he came to, a few minutes after, he told us a story of stretcher-bearing, the sergeant. They're saying, if we're going to hit, we're going to. Then the tank. At this he shouted, hello, very loudly. In time, 
he told us of the casualty clearing station, and then shouted, B-b-b-bastard! After this, he couldn't tell us much more. 24th of June, 1918. I had a long interview with the patient. Felt grand when I woke up, he said. On the strength of this, he did his normal work and attempted to swing the floor polisher. But his hands got all shaky. And then it went up into my head. He is quite bright now. He gives me a connected account of my preliminary explanations to him yesterday of the nature of hypnotism and the reason we are going to use it to reintegrate his memories. He gave a good account of all he had told me up to the shelling incident then shook and smiled and said I'm not trying to say hello. He succeeded in repressing this. Then I wanted him to hold himself in when he came to the story of Jerry. He did so until he came to this point when he shouted bastard, bastard. I practiced him in saying bastard. At first, every event, attempt, he produced a head shake and a rapid, stuttering ejaculation. He successfully said bass in give me a bottle of bass and then tard. And once I got him to say you are a bastard quite well. 27th of June, 1918. I gave him some simple questions about the day of week, date, etc. to make him think. He shook his head, both sideways and in the forward direction while thinking, but otherwise showed a distinct improvement in steadiness. He said hello and bastard out of their context successfully. When I got him to tell the tale of being blown up, he successfully repressed the tendency to shout hello, but at the jerry part, he turned half left, started and shouted, bastard, as before. He said he thought he was talking to Jerry. Is there any special reason for this bastard complex? Note that he had an unhappy life at home with his parents. It's fascinating for those of you who've read or or, um, watched the movie about regeneration by Pat Barker that in fact Seligman is doing the same thing as Rivers was in in one hospital um, in Liverpool, I think it was, that that he was doing this, this kind of work. So thanks. Uh, please join me in thanking our three uh, protagonists. Um, for their and if you want to read more, you can find it all in, in the archives.